Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover WCW's last stand. It's Super Brawl 1999. It's Hogan versus Flair. Kyush, are you ready to cover? And this is saying a lot. One of the craziest months in WCW history. I so am. Guys, this has been an unbelievable watching experience, watching every single one of these Nitros, and even watching every single episode of Nitro on the way into this. I'm sure there's so much I don't even understand about the context of the time and what you're going to tell me about what's going on outside of the ring, but there's so much to talk about just show to show. This is a ridiculous period of time. It's just wild that at this point this company is producing three hours of Nitro on Monday, two hours of Thunder on Thursday, two hours of Saturday night on Saturday, and then various syndicated shows, too. They still have WCW Worldwide, and I think, I don't know, they might still have main event going. I think Pro has ended. They still have a syndicated show or two on top of that. And, like... The person who's running all of this is someone with zero booking experience who just took over the, the book. And that's pretty wild when you think about it. Like, Kevin Nash gets shit on pretty regularly about his time as a booker, and for right or for wrong, for various reasons. But just imagine being in charge of all of this. Like, you have to deal with all of this. I'm sure you've seen the guest booker clip where he explains how hard it was just because of the logistics of this, that like they tape night, they do nitro on Monday and then they would tape two thunders on Wednesday. So they're taping that week's thunder and next week's thunder, but that means they have to have figured out what's happening on both those thunders and the nitro in between. So, I mean, they have to put together six, 10 hours of TV in about a day on Monday. Which is literally impossible. Like, Nitro was a show that regularly got changed and torn apart during the show. There was no way to plan ahead like that. And then somebody gets hurt or somebody has a contract dispute or somebody gets fired and you have all kinds of continuity errors you've created. So honestly, what Nash settles on, and I can't even really blame him for this, is that Thunder just becomes a show where they just put on, like, matches and then they just do clips of stuff from Nitro, and that's the character progression. It's just whatever happened on Nitro. And I can't even blame him. That was fine with me. I I enjoyed Thunder at the time. I enjoyed it to this day just because WCW had such a deep and such a roster of weirdos that you would just turn on Thunder and get the strangest matches. It would be, you know, this week we've got Chris Adams versus Juventud Guerrera and, I don't know, Mikey Whipwreck versus Steve McMichael. Chris Jericho versus Ric Flair. This is about where we are with Rampage and AEW now. Yeah. Where it's just like any particular episode of Rampage might either be unwatchable nothing or fucking rad, depending on which random collection of matches you get. Yeah, like last week we got that awesome episode of Rampage that had a Shibata match, that awesome three-way lucha match a Zack saber jr match that's the kind of stuff AEW can throw at you after rampage has just been completely forgettable for months yeah and then next week it'll probably just be like juice robinson and nobody else that you've ever heard of and then it's like well okay i can skip that one so anyway we left off with the infamous finger poke of doom kevin nash laid down for hollywood hogan and handed him the wcw title Thus, the NWO was reformed with Hogan, Nash, 
Scott Hall, Lex Luger, Buff Bagwell, and Scott Steiner. And it kind of seemed like Kurt Hennig at first, but we'll get to that in a second. It's Kurt Hennig being in a suit while everyone else yeah. is wearing the Wolfpack gear was a very clear sign that he was not long for this stable. <laughs> and he would just sort of stand in the middle between the red, the black and red and the red and white, or the, the white, the black and white. He, it was strange, but they end up booting him out. Yeah, they both wind up booting him out. He's not a member of anything in particular a week later. So... The next show to air was Thunder on Thursday, January the 7th from Richmond, Virginia. This Thunder drew an enormous 4.27 rating. I think that was the third highest in the history of the show. Uh, beaten by the debut episode, and then I don't remember, what, I don't know what the other one was, but one of the, like, enormous interest to sit for people to tune in and see what happened on Monday and see the fallout. They didn't get to see much. The black and red showed up. Hogan was wearing his cool pants. I call them, which are a pair of black jeans, black jeans with white stitching and bell bottoms and a flannel shirt. Okay. We got to talk about Hulk Hogan's dress sense during this era. So he's yeah. clearly decided, like, oh, I'm with the cool guys now, so I got to dress cool. And I got to imagine he's just wearing whatever his son is wearing at the time. Yes. Now, my brother dressed like this at the time, but in his defense, he was 15 years old and it was 1999. That's the thing. Hogan's out here wearing Jinko jeans and flannel <laughs> shirts. <laughs> like, this is some shit... <laughs> Obviously, it's not like 2001. You could have caught me dressing like this. But again, in my defense, I was in eighth grade. That's the thing. This was the hot look for 14 year olds during this time period. Uh, Not for 45 year old men. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I'm all for people not having to dress their age. But look, man, Hulk Hogan looks like a dickhead in these clothes. Clearly rated. I mean, he didn't rate his son's closet because he couldn't have worn a pair of his son's pants. Although maybe his son's pants were so baggy that he could wear them is one explanation. But more likely, he saw a pair of pants his son was wearing, asked him where he got them. And then he went to the mall to like Hot Topic or wherever and got a pair of these for himself. The, The idea of Hulk Hogan in 1999 walking into a Hot Topic in the mall and being like, hmm, brother, these are some pretty big pants. This is going to be pretty cool for the Wolfpack, brother. Where does a man who's like six foot six find a pair of pants like that? He probably had to have them tailored. See, that's the thing is that like for Jinkos to be Jinkos, they have to be extremely baggy. For Hulk Hogan to wear pants like that, they probably just fit because he's gigantic. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got to find a pair of Jinkos and has a tailor like let them out so that they're extra baggy. Next Monday, Nitro on January 11th went down from Knoxville, Tennessee, the campus of the national champion Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, Drew a sellout crowd of over 13,000 people. The NWO came down for a promo here with the Hells Angels accompanying them for security, which is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Look, I was ready to hate on this segment. I've been ready to hate on everything so far this season because, like, I, I like doing that. It's fun to be a hater. This is one of the coolest segments I've ever seen open a show. It's like 20 minutes of just the coolest people you've ever seen with like a million guys on motorcycles driving through an arena. And it's cool as shit. And 
I can almost guarantee this was an actual biker gang. I don't think these were actors. No, these guys looked like genuinely yeah. dangerous, like you would not want to meet them. <laughs> they were probably carry, and I doubt they patted them down for guns. Yeah, this was not like a, a middle-aged biker gang like most of these guys probably knew in real life. These were the real Hells Angels, ladies and gentlemen. Who do you think was their connect for the Hells Angels? Do you think Nash called Taker? I don't know. Like, they shouted out the name of, like, the head of the Hells Angels. It's possible that one of these guys just knew him. Maybe Bischoff yeah. knew him. From, I mean, they all went to... Uh, met him in Sturgis. Yeah, this is, how, this is also just how cool WCW and the NWO is at this time. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, organized crime? We have connections there. I love that idea of, like, they were, like, tiptoeing their way into the mob. Oh, boy, yeah. that could have gone way worse. Today's wrestlers would never... These wrestlers wouldn't even know how. These wrestlers wouldn't even ride a Vespa. <laughs> they proceeded to do a rambling promo about nothing in particular. But that which, was the NWO special, man. <laughs> it's a real running theme of these. We never get any explanation as to how their reconciliation happened, when it happened, why it happened. I think some better writing would have, that would have been a nice mystery to unlock here. I would have loved, you know, Mean Gene doing some investigative reporting, trying to figure out what happened here. We don't get any of that. See, that's the problem. And that, that became a problem when they had Bischoff start doing Hogan's interviews instead of Gene. Like when he joined the group, like he would hold the microphone for Hogan and stuff. Like we stopped getting like someone prodding you and like leading you yeah. along the interview route. And instead they just got to talk for 20 minutes about whatever the fuck they wanted. But yes, this really needed to be a, we had a plan all along, Gino. Nash yeah. knew I was the master of the NWO. And he ga I gave him the biggest check the world's ever seen to lay down and make me the champ again. Yeah. If these Mark fans had bought more pay-per-views, maybe Nash would be making enough money he wouldn't have sold out to Hogan. But you know what? That's on the fans. And then Nash needs to get up there and be like, I don't give a shit about Bill Goldberg or WCW or any of this crap. I'm here for I'm money, here to make baby. Money. Yeah. yeah. This company had paid me a real fucking wage when I was here the first time. I wouldn't have to do this. It's all about the money and the miles, brother. It's the only yeah. thing that matters. Uh, later in the show, they kicked Conan out of the NWO after he stood up for Rey Mysterio. This was surprisingly emotional for me. Like, yeah. because the Wolfpack was basically just Hall Nash and Conan. Those were the three cool dudes who were too cool and for the Le regular Lex NWO. Lug Lex Luger in his black jeans. Yeah, Lex Luger also was allowed to come. And so, like, Conan goes... So, Luger starts fucking with Rey because he won't take off the LWO shirt. And I guess they don't want anybody else wearing it. In wearing W.O. Couldn't anything? get it off because the T-shirts are too, too tight. <laughs> and so, like, Conan's just like, hey, man, why the fuck are we just beating the shit out of Ray? You know he's my dude. Like, and Kevin just like, Kevin comes into the ring. He's like, yeah, man, I totally understand. And then they beat Conan's ass. And I'm like, I was genuinely sad about that. I was like, fuck. Yeah. Kevin, that's your friend. Yeah. Well, he's turned on all semblance of humanity at this point. But, like, turning Conan full babyface is a great idea because the crowds are in love with him. Okay, we got to talk about Conan. When people talk about the missed opportunities on stars from this era, they never talk about Conan, and he might actually be the biggest star this company has. Yeah, here's the thing, is that he's not great in the ring. He's sloppy as fuck. We know no, this. Oh, who cares? 
his promos don't make any sense but it doesn't matter because of all the guys that we talk about as missed opportunities like jericho and eddie and whatever conan was already there like you could put conan in a match with the the most charismatic man in wrestling at this point which is really saying a lot it's like you could put him in a singles match with nash at the next pay-per-view and have him win and it would not be weird he's at that level already he just needed like one big win and he never gets it. I think, man, he would have. And I'm sure they had him do in like Spanish language radio promoting the shows. But he's a guy I think you could put on the Tonight Show and he would absolutely kill it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like he might. Conan with an open mic has always been a little bit uh, <laughs> unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, you know, who knows what he might say, but. It'll be interesting. The idea of a Conan versus Scott Steiner storyline of who the fuck knows what these two are going to say is pretty good. <sighs> uh, main event that night, Nash versus Giant in a Loser Leaves Town match. Uh, last match for the Giant in WCW as he's about to leave for the WWF. Now, throughout the night... Um, they had been showing, you know, pre-tapes of Flair forcing Bischoff to set up the ring, which was very funny and included a cameo from notorious pervert Klondike Bill, who was in charge of, you know, setting up the ring for WCW. These segments were very funny. Each week, Flair would make Bischoff do a different humiliating task. Yes. This one in particular was good because he had to drive the fucking truck all the way to the yeah. arena and then unload it. And the whole time he's like, why do I got to do this? It's so fucking stupid. This is so heavy. And Klondike Bill's in the ring just like, you're such a pussy. Just lift it. <laughs> but the payoff was Bischoff hit a wrench in the ring and Nash used it to hit Giant and knock him out and pin him. That was actually a pretty geniusly written angle. because like, It was a they, good payoff. They established the wrench that Bischoff's using yeah. as like a brightly colored blue one that he brought from yeah. home and like to assemble the ring. So when you see it come up again, you're like, oh shit, that's Bischoff's wrench. That was great. By the way, I want you guys to go out and Google Klondike Bill if you don't already know what we're talking about and have a good afternoon reading up on one of the weirdest dudes ever to live. This Nitro did a 5.0 rating, the same as the previous week. Once again, one of the strongest. I mean, this is high watermark. 5.0 is about as high as they ever get when they're head-to-head with Raw. Uh, Raw did a 5. Is great. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, with no, I mean, there wasn't really anything promoted. for. I think they had promote, I think they had announced Nash versus Giant on Thunder for this Nitro. But still, yeah, to maintain the rating from the heavily promoted Goldberg versus Nash match is really good. I also bet there were a lot of people who watched Raw all the way through and then heard about what happened on Nitro and was like, oh shit, next week I'm watching Nitro. I got to find out what happened. Yeah. Raw did a 5.5, which was down a little bit from the 5.7 they had done the previous week, which I think usually the live episodes of Raw would do better than the taped ones, and this one was live, but obviously they don't have anything as big as the world title change they had the previous week. Right. And that's still unbelievable numbers by both of these companies. Jesus Christ. Sold out. Went down that Sunday, January 17th in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, Sell out crowd over 10,000 people, a $200,000 gate, cheap tickets, but it's West Virginia. Yeah. I mean, that's still fine. You packed them in. That's all you're trying to do. 
And they did 330,000 pay-per-view buys, which is a solid number for a B-show. Especially this show. Yeah. This card, there's a reason we're not covering it. This is the most boring-looking card of all time. Chris Benoit beat Mike Enos. Norman Smiley beat Chavo Guerrero. Fit Finley beat Van Hammer. That's a Saturday night match. These have all been Saturday night matches. Bam Bam Bigelow beat Wrath. That sounds kind of cool. Yeah, but that Lex also Luger still beat Conan. Like, That's a real this, match. I say this sounds like a really hot nitro so far. Chris Jericho beat Saturn in a loser must wear a dress match. One of three separate loser must wear a dress matches these three would have. Kidman beat Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrero, and Psychosis to retain the cruiserweight title. That was a fun one. Sure. Rick Flair and David Flair beat Barry Windham and Kurt Hennig. That wasn't a ton of fun. No, it wasn't. However much fun you think it might be, it's not. And Goldberg beats Scott Hall in a taser ladder match. I want you guys to imagine you're trying to put together a card that people want to pay money for. What's the least compelling kind of match you can put Goldberg in? Like, you ain't getting any spots off the ladder in this thing, right? The hot angle here was the NWO beating down David Flair after they had handcuffed Rick to the ropes. I always love a good babyface handcuff, like, just like AEW just did with uh, Britt Baker and Adam Cole and Chris Jericho. I love the babyface is handcuffed to the ropes and he watches someone he loves get the shit beaten out of them. In this case, David took an ass whooping from the ages from Hogan's weight belt. Like, Hogan wears him out for, like, five yeah. minutes straight. Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> kid's paying his dues. You know Flair told Hogan he needed to stiff him. He's like, yeah, this kid wants to be in the business. We're going to show him what it's like to be in the business. Flair was probably like, I don't want this kid in the business. Fuck yeah. him up so bad that he goes home and becomes a police officer like he's supposed yeah, to. I, I want this kid to go get a real job instead of this shit. And if you believe that Hogan was told that, it makes total sense because he wears his ass out. This is brutal. This was a really good angle, though. And, man, they build the heat between Flair and Hogan for this show. Yep. (laughs) So the next side I understand. So we're going to cover this in a minute. But, like, the success of the show is ridiculous. Like, this segment alone is enough to sell it, honestly. Uh, Nitro the next night, 15,000 people in the crowd, $322,000 gate, a 4.86 rating, so down just a hair, but still a really good number. Raw does a 5.6. They're not beating Raw, but they're doing, I mean, these are really good numbers. Their average for the fourth quarter of 98 was a 4.37, so they're still well above what they had been doing, and those numbers were huge. Yeah, this is incredible. The idea that they're in any way failing at this point, which is sort of what the narrative is, is a joke. Like, they are still, at this point, the second biggest and best company that has ever existed or ever will. So Flair swore revenge on Hogan and booked himself to face Hogan for the title at Super Brawl. (laughs) Brilliant Flair promo. He was just hitting these out of the park. This is also the first decent decision that President Flair makes. It's just yeah. like, oh, wait, I can just give myself a title shot. Sick. 
<sighs> Again, I, I love when it's realistic that the guy book and books himself in the main event. Of course, that's exactly what you would do. You can't tell me that you wouldn't. That night, we had a match between David Flair and Bischoff. Lots of stipulations to this one. If David lost, Rick would get his head shaved and Bischoff would get control of WCW back. If Bischoff lost, he would get his head shaved. There was also a reference to Flair having his ass shaved. Yes, he deliberately says, I will shave (laughs) your head and your ass. Not mentioned again after that promo, <laughs> thankfully. I don't need I don't need to see ass shaving on my wrestling show. What a great combination of the kiss my ass stipulation and the head shaving stipulation. I will shave your ass on live television. <laughs> David beat Bischoff after he hit him with a roll of quarters, so Bischoff got his head shaved. Not bald. They just shaved off his black hair down to his gray hair. This is interesting because I think he just decided that he wanted to go yeah. back, go full gray. Yeah. So like they just I'm sure do him a he, favor. I'm sure he was t- dying his hair. That jet black had to be doing a lot of damage to it. It's just so funny too because the look difference. He doesn't look bad with gray hair at all, but it's a stark difference because he uh, looks, looks like he's like he looks 15 years older. Yeah, he looks like he's maybe like mid 30s with the black hair, and he looks immediately 50 years old with the gray. Uh, the next week, Nitro, January 25th at Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Kurt Hennig was kicked out of the NWO here. Bam Bam Bigelow and Scott Hall fought to a no contest in a taser ladder match after Goldberg beat them both up. Bret Hart beat Booker T to retain the U.S. title. And the main event was Hogan, Nash, and Steiner against Flair, Benoit, and Mongo. Ended in a DQ after, I'm not kidding, everyone in the company interfered. This was one of my favorite ways Nitro would end a few times a year is they would do the brawl to end all brawl. They'd literally have 40 or 50 guys fight in. This is the best because they'd start with it just being like, <laughs> yeah. all right, everybody who's feuding together, they all come out and start brawling with each other. And the Horseman and Goldberg, but then it just keeps growing and growing. And then like Finley and Psychosis are out yeah. there fighting. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then suddenly Great Sasuke runs out and just his mask and he's butt ass <laughs> naked. <laughs> Throwing karate kicks with his dick out. Um... Hot Nitro. Good show. No, this is a great show. This has been an incredible three weeks of television. I got to be honest. Like, there's no wonder that this pay-per-view is as successful as it is because they are white hot coming into this show. Yeah, they did another 5.0 rating. I don't have the Raw rating here, but Raw beat them. I assume Raw was, you know, 5.7 or something like that. Yeah, I don't uh, think Nitro did... ever wins again, do they? No, Nitro never beats Raw again. Yeah. <laughs> the the last time was uh, the night after Halloween Havoc when they aired, when they did the replay of the Goldberg DDP match. Yep. Yeah. Um. So they did. A 16,000 attendance here for a $400,000 gig. Just stunning numbers. Sheesh. Yeah, like $400,000 gate would have been the company record, you know, two years before this. 
Here's the thing, too. I'm pretty sure they're outdrawing attendance-wise WWE because I feel like it, WWE hasn't really started going for big arenas and stuff yet. Like, if yeah, you remember, not, they're running huge arenas for Nitro every week here. They're doing big basketball arenas or stadiums every week. And I feel like WWE is still doing, like, their same little shitty ones. Like, fucking WrestleMania 2000s at the Anaheim Arena. Yeah. Uh, Nitro on February 1st, kind of a step back from the previous couple shows. Not a lot happened on this one. Um, ended with Hogan beating up David Flair again. Actually, I think this is where they teased Hogan was going to beat him up, but instead he said they had a different idea for him leading to what we're going to talk about in a second. Yep. Uh, this one they did, se- you know, attendance of 17,000, gate of 380,000, and a 4.7 rating, which is down a little bit, but kind of within the margin of error. The problem is Raw did a record 5.9, just a monster rating for Raw. God damn. Um, yeah. Nothing you can do about that. The competition is just exploding. Um... Somewhere in here, Nash does a meeting backstage with all the wrestlers, which I think is this is where they sort of I think this is where they formally announce he's taken over booking. Nash emphasizes a couple things. He says they're going to do more out of ring pre tape segments to be more like raw, which means the guys need to get to the arena early so they can, you know, be there to do their tapes. And he also emphasizes that everybody needs to do jobs, which I think is a shot at Bret Hart because Bret had complained about being asked to lose to Booker T. Which, I mean, I guess I get Bret complaining about that, but that actually would have been really, really helpful for Booker. A couple weeks after the Booker, Booker does get to beat Bret a few weeks after this on a Nitro that happens after Super Brawl. Right. Um, I think the back and forth there, it was just like there was a dispute, it sounds like, between Nash and Bischoff as to what they should do with Brett. Nash was not a Brett fan, didn't think he was over, didn't think he was any good at this point. Bischoff felt like there was still value there and wanted to do Hogan versus Brett at Halloween Havoc. I hate to say it, but I think I kind of side with Nash here. I think Brett was washed at this point. No, Nash was right. Like, potentially he's not, you could over. St- he's not good. I don't think that Brett was washed completely, but the idea that he was still a main eventer just isn't true. It's just not. Like, he's in about the same place that Perfect is at this point. Like, you just need yeah. to accept that and, like, find... Like, having a prolonged feud with Booker T actually would have been a fantastic use of Brett. That'd be good. I think maybe mentoring Benoit or something like that, but it's just, I don't think he's a top guy anymore. And I don't, I don't know that him and Hogan would have been that big a match. I think that's a huge match in the WWF. I don't think it's a big match in WCW. No, because all the history doesn't mean anything in WCW and they've never really referenced it ever. Yeah. Nitro on February 8th was unopposed because Raw was preempted by what? The Westminster Dog Show. This show marked a shift in the presentation of the show. They started doing the cinematic, the backstage segments became more cinematic. You know, tradi- this is it. This is where we get into an interest in both cinematography discussion, almost a discussion of like the rules of professional wrestling and how it's yes. presented. Um, 
here they stop showing the backstage segments in the arena and they tell the announce I believe the announcers can see them on the monitors, but they tell the announcers to act like they aren't seeing them. So here, so in a traditional wrestling show, everything we are being like, everything we're being shown is understood. It's happening. The wrestlers are aware of the camera. It's being shown on TV. Everybody should understand this here. They're doing it differently. And it's um, what I've heard Nash explain it. Have you ever seen the Larry Sanders show? Yes, I have. Okay. So for, you know, people who aren't old as shit like me and Hughes. <laughs> the Larry Sanders show was a show on HBO back in like the it was the nineties, I think, yeah, not even the two thousands. But the way it was presented was there would be a difference between how it was shot. It was so the there was a talk show within the show hosted by Larry Sanders. And they would have, you know, the backstage stuff would be shot cinematically with, you know, shot like a TV show on film. And then you would go, then they would do segments that were part of the show where he's interviewing people and whatever. And that is shot like a late night TV show. And there's a difference in how it's presented. That's how Nash described this, that the backstage segments are now cinematic. They're not, you know, in theory being shown on TV. I, that doesn't work within the traditional rules of wrestling where everything we see is supposed to be happening and the wrestlers are aware of the camera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. It's different. I don't necessarily hate it, but it's different. I kind of admired them going with such a bold, creative change. And like Nash, I can see as being someone who was a huge fan of the Larry Sanders show. So it makes sense that that's the kind of thing. Very much his sense of humor. But it just seems like at the heart of wrestling is a sports presentation. Like no matter how much like you TV it up and it's very difficult to say, like, this is your sports presentation, and backstage, here's the scripted entertainment backstory to all of those matches. Especially when the people in the audience can't see the backstory to any of the matches they're watching. Yeah, the other people who did this was Lucha Underground work this way. Where Which you the, are the biggest fan of of anyone who lives on this earth. The only one, really. Where all those, they shot everything. The backstage segment, the non-wrestling segments were super cinematic. And they were never acknowledged to have happened by the announcers. Because, But that worked a little better because that show was taped. And it just made a little more sense. That, you know, they taped these matches months in advance, etc. Like, Nitro is airing live. I don't know how it's supposed to work. That, like, nobody's family calls them. It's like, hey, did you see somebody who's talking shit about you backstage? Yeah, the key difference between Lucha Underground and this is that Lucha Underground, everything, including the matches and the crowd, are part of a contained universe in which all of this shit is happening. In Nitro Land, once they come out through the curtain, that's real life with real people and, like, real matches according to the way that it works. So it's only fake backstage, and then they come out here, and it doesn't work that way anymore. <laughs> So there were segments on this show shot from an, an unidentified person's point of view where they're approached by Tor- Tori Wilson in a bar and then they leave with her. I really like this. This is a really good mystery. Like, who is this beautiful woman and who is she talking to is a genuinely good mystery. We get the reveal on this show. Yeah, there are two great parts to this. One is the mystery of, like, who is this person who Tori Wilson is clearly seducing into doing something 
bad. Like we know that this is a bad idea, whatever it is that it is. And number two, for all the world, it is like Tori Wilson is seducing you at home and that ain't bad. Look, a lot of people have made a lot of money with pornography like this. Yeah, this is some first-person shit, baby. (laughs) I wonder where the idea from this came from. (laughs) Two things Kevin Nash knows a ton about. The Larry Sanders show and porn. Klondike Bill at it again. Klondike Bill being like, hey, uh, I got some stuff for you to watch. I think it might help with your new presentation. Uh, the other backstage segments, Eric Bischoff being forced to clean the bathrooms at the arena. These segments were genuinely funny. When Larry Zabisco is just rambling on and on as he's combing his hair, and Bischoff's like, God, will you shut the fuck up already? <laughs> uh, Ming and Barbarian stinking up the bathroom, and I can't remember all the other ones, but these were actually funny. And then making Bischoff shoot clean the bathroom. He's not, yeah. like, fakey fake wiping stuff down. He's like elbow deep in the toilets and shit (laughs) you know i think eric bischoff may have been a janitor at one point he owned a landscaping company he sold meat he probably does know how to clean a floor he just remembered all of this when it was time to make jim duggan the janitor he's like you know what i know what we can make jim do okay maybe the funniest part of the show though raven and canyon having a wild night on the town so they're still doing this Raven and Canyon storyline where they're at Raven's <laughs> mom's house. Raven and has like, gotten so depressed he's gone back to his family's giant house in Florida. And Canyon did not know that his mother was this rich. He thought that Raven was like this brooding person with yeah. no family. And it turns out he's just a spoiled rich kid. Yeah. And Canyon's, Canyon's like, what? Canyon's huge. Canyon's like, this is fucking great, man. <laughs> and they're driving around in a Ferrari. Like <laughs> they go to the bank, withdraw ten thousand dollars. It's like they get ten grand in big bills and ten thousand in singles. So they're gonna go buy a bunch of nice clothes and then they hit the strip club. And they drink a lot and then they wake up the next morning and they're kind of uncomfortable with each other and have breakfast. So what Raven proved Who's to say what happened? Raven pitched to the office that he and Canyon should become lovers. That is what Raven pitched. They should have. They're such good friends. It turns out that Canyon was the one who was uncomfortable with it. And I yeah, don't I bet. I don't know for sure if at this point Raven knew that Canyon was gay, because I think he doesn't really come out to his friends for like another year or two. That's an interesting question. Yeah, did Raven know Canyon was gay? Is he like subtly trying to get him to, you know, embrace and admit that here? But yeah, wouldn't that be uncomfortable if you were closeted yes. in the wrestling business and then you had to play a gay character? It would have it would have been very interesting. I've heard Kevin Nash claim that at some point him and Scott Hall were talking about what what if we became lovers in storyline? Fuck yeah. Like obviously yeah. I'm very excited by this idea. Let's fucking do this. But like that's also ground never before trod. I you get you're that's gonna get the some real, interest. That's the real forbidden door. Yeah. The back one. Yeah. Uh, the other one, and I loved these two, was Hogan being a politician and telling each member of the NWO black and white that they were the leader. That's the best part. So it's the <laughs> NWO elite, which is like, so he's ostensibly knitted both of them together. But the NWO black and white is still kind of its own Bunch organization of off jokes. to the side. 
Yeah, it's like it's Brian Adams, Vincent, Scott Norton, Horace, and I can't remember if they have anybody else. But I love the idea that it's a separate organization, but, right. Hogan, Bunch but, of Hogan's, clowns. but Hogan's still in charge of it. So he gets to decide who's in charge of the B crew. And he's just, I don't. I think he's just fucking with him for either he's fucking with him for his own amusement here, or it's just Hogan being a chicken shit politician, which I don't know. Feels like maybe Nash taking a subtle shot at him. I did love the idea of like Stevie Ray coming to him and being like, "Yo, what the fuck? Am I in charge?" And Hogan being like, "Uh, uh, uh, yeah, of course you are." Of course you are. Uh, Flair forced Bret Hart to defend the U.S. title against the returning Roddy Piper. Piper won after interference from Mad TV comedian Will Sasso. Tell me Kevin Nash is trying to bury Bret Hart without telling me. Like, do we need to explain to people what Mad TV even was? It was a shit version of Saturday Night Live that was on Fox on, like, Friday nights or something like that. It was was their target demographic, and I thought it was lame. I was a gigantic Saturday Night Live fan, and I was also their target demographic, and I also thought it was incredibly lame. Not one funny joke ever in the history of the show. And Will Sasso was a fat guy comedian. Yeah, it would be their their shit version of Chris Farley. Yes. So he interferes here. Now, in theory, this is some decent celebrity crossover, I guess. Sasso is a huge fan, and at least he's big enough that he could, like, mix it up with somebody. That show did. I think that show actually did okay viewership. Oh, it did. It was late night on a Friday, but still. Brett Brett had appeared on the show. I don't think I sadly did not take the time to watch this. Mad TV was actually a really good way of finding out who we, among your friend group had a shitty sense of humor and sucked. Because <laughs> if you had, they were like, yeah, man, I watch Mad TV every week, you'd be like, cool, you're an idiot. I don't have to talk to you anymore. Uh, this show did a colossal 5.67 rating. Whoa. As a reminder, they're, they're unopposed, so no Raw this week, so... But still, huge number. Biggest in the history of the show. See, this is always an interesting argument that people have made throughout history. And that's that, do you think that there were only 5.6 million total people watching wrestling during this period? No, there were some people who only watched one or the other. But a lot of people watched both. Yeah, I don't think it was 10 million total. No. I think it, there were a lot of flip back and forths because those counted. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was one of them. My who i was watching with was one of um yeah a lot of people watched both like the kid i feel like of all my friends at school watched both raw and nitro is my memory so i mean it it just makes sense so i would guess there were probably like 6.57 million total people watching and 5.6 on this one chose to watch nitro that's pretty good yeah dog show did a 3.5 the thing is, the dog show used to before Raw got hot. The dog show was drawn better ratings than Raw. Oh, you know, USA was pissed that they were locked into the dog show contract. <laughs> but Raw. at this point, yeah. But all the years before this, the dog show was doing great. Vince would be like, "Hey, can we not do the dog show?" And they were like, "Fuck you! The dogs draw, man. <laughs> Fuck your wrestling." Not, yeah, we cannot do the dog show when you can have draw the dog show. And then they finally did, and they still did the dog yeah. show. Uh, they did, this was in Buffalo, they did 15,000 people, $282,000 gate. These shows have all, they're all sold out. It's incredible. And big arenas. 
So they're not selling out 6,000 seat arenas. Also, these fans are rabid. Like, when you watch these random nitros, it has the air of, like, an unhinged frat party. Yeah. I was at a nitro a few months before this where there was just – there was a near riot in the upper deck. Like, yeah. Giant, literally, the like, I'm not kidding when I say like, they called in security and threw out – almost the entire section there were maybe six people left in the whole section at the end of it but so i think it was just like a wcw fan and nwo fan had been talking shit all night and getting progressively drunker and then they got into a fight and all their buddies jumped in and it just escalated to the point where people were being thrown down the stairs this was far more entertaining than what was happening in the ring at that point but like this is the atmosphere of what these shows were at this point like it was like we're going to get a bunch of 25-year-old dudes and their girlfriends into an arena, and they're just going to fucking get drunk. Everyone in the crowd has a beer in their hand. Every single person. By this point, I feel like they've finally cracked down on people throwing stuff at the ring. Like, they were embracing that for a little while when the NWO first started. By now, I think the NWO guys have gotten sick of getting hit with stuff, so they actually have some security around the ring to go after people when they're doing it. Wasn't it sometime in 98 where somebody threw a battery at Bischoff? Like battery golf ball. Like People were bringing real shit and slinging it at the ring. Yeah, you can't have that. People are going to get hurt. Um, I have like an entire page of notes on this next Nitro. Hell yeah. (laughs) February 15th Nitro. This took place at the Steinbrenner Pavilion in Tampa, Florida, at the Florida State Fairgrounds, which only holds about 2,500 people. All right. This was a favor from Harvey Schiller to George Steinbrenner because they're friends. Are you serious? Like Steinbrenner was like, yo, have Nitro in my building. Yes. And they did it. They did this several times. Steinbrenner was supposed to be at this show. And at some point they say on commentary that he is, but he didn't show up. He went to the ESPYs instead. That fucking rules. And then there was a, there was apparently a lot of bickering between Steinbrenner's people and WCW's people, where like WCW was mad Steinbrenner's wasn't there, and Steinbrenner's people were mad they didn't put on a better show. Which, hey, I'm about to tell you what happened, and both have a point, I think. I love the idea of Steinbrenner's people being like, "Hey, we watched the show and it fucking it sucked." sucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. This show had longer matches than Nitro typically would. Jerry Flynn and Saturn got eight minutes. A Lucha six-man tag got 17 minutes, which is insane. Um, Malenko and Benoit had a 15-minute match with Dave Taylor and Fit Finley. And then they had another 17-minute match with Scotty Riggs and Mike Enos. So they had... Two Malenko and Benoit matches go 15-plus minutes here against weak, weak competition. This seems like an expert burial by Kevin Nash of, like, somebody backstage or somebody in that wrestler's meeting, like, complained, like, there's not enough wrestling on the show. And he's like, oh, I'll give you wrestling. Oh, you want wrestling? How about 20 minutes of Mike Enos, motherfucker? Yeah, this is not, like... 
I just you if you're gonna have matches that length on TV, they gotta be really good, really. It's not even good. It's not these matches weren't good. Like these are guys who can wrestle, but who cares? Like who wants to see? These are part of the tag team tournament, so there's some stakes here. But if you're gonna have matches of this length, it's got to be stars against stars. It's got to be title matches. Yeah, if and this even were then, the finals, you shouldn't be going this long. If this were the finals and it was them against like uh, Hennig and Wyndham, okay, maybe you could go 18 on TV. That's maybe okay. But like even then, like why? And then they had two more storyline-driven matches. Piper beat Hogan by DQ after the NWO interfered, and Bret Hart beat Will Sasso. Stretched his fat ass with the sharpshooter. Hope he Hell really yeah. cinched it in. I bet he not did. The wor- like, not the working sharpshooter. I'm wrestling a celebrity, huh? We'll see about that shit. How much do you think Bret complained about having to wrestle this fat slob? Do you think that Bret got booked in any match during this year that he did not complain about? Because it doesn't seem like he was too happy. He was not a happy camper. (laughs) And it's one of those, I can see his complaints, and I can see Nash's side of the equation, too. Especially for Nash, he's like, this is just, not only is this the guy who was like a dickhead who like big dog me back in WWE all the time, who had all the control. Yeah, now he's he's making more money than any of us, even though he's terrible. Doesn't draw, isn't over. And now he's going to still try to tell me what's good and what's not. Fuck you. You're doing the job, baby. (laughs) So the big storyline of the show was Flair forcing Bischoff to drive his limo. Of course, Bischoff is in the full limo driver uniform with the hat. Loved this. This is amazing television. Bischoff drives him out to the middle of a field where the NWO rolls up in Hummers and SWAT gear and beats the shit out of him. This was somehow this was like scary. This was shot kind of like a horror movie, I'd say. The moment where he stops in the middle of the field and Flair's like, hey, what's going on? Are we we? in this field? And then the trucks start pulling up is genuinely frightening. And yeah. And they and then huge dudes and and then these huge. I mean, you can you can tell who they are, but still these gigantic dudes in ski masks ripping open the doors of the limo and just pummeling Flair for 10 minutes straight. It's scary. Like this is a good segment. I don't give a shit what anybody says. This was a good segment. For whatever reason, this uh, – I mean, the, it's more the part after this that everybody clowns, but yes. this part got buried at the time, too. It's another, oh, they're trying to make movies. Oh, they spent too much money on this, blah, blah, blah. What does this have to do with wrestling? I thought this was awesome. And I, I thought, thought this, was a- was way, this was way more entertaining than the bullshit Lucha Six-Man and Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit wrestling for 45 minutes. I also thought it was a great part of the story. Like, this is what it's all been building to. Bischoff has been, like, having his little bouts of resistance here and there, and now he's concocted a plan to kill Flair and end it once and for all. So Flair is laying there in the field, half dead, and then a good Samaritan farmer (laughs) rescues him, puts him in his turnip truck, and drives him to the arena, I was thinking this was Dusty Rhodes at first, which would have been a cool as shit reveal. How if a funny guy in a cowboy hat shows up 
and it's dusty. Like, hey, baby, it looks like you could use a hand from the American dream. Yeah. I thought Hell. it was dusty at first because it was just like a fat guy in a cowboy hat, but it turned out it was nobody. Whoever pitched the idea of, yeah, it'll be a, a farmer in a turnip trunk who get because Flair's a man of the people. Like, that person deserved to get yeah. punched in the face. I, it should have been Arn or Mongo or, yeah. There's plenty of people just been for like this to be. A guy on a motorcycle and then Flair, like, knocks him off of it and steals yeah. it and drives it back to the arena. Or an ambulance. and you could, I mean, I know it's silly, but you could do the spot where Flair hijacks the ambulance, which we've That's seen a, fine. a million times. I'm good with that. Anyway, Flair stumbles into the arena at the end of the show. And Heenan asks if he's drunk because the announcers have to act like they don't know what's been going on. Well, that's the thing. Imagine you're somebody in attendance at this show and you've just been watching a normal show. It's been boring or whatever. And then like a weirdly disheveled Ric Flair is like stumbling his way down to the ring. You don't know why. No. Like, what the fuck is this? And then he got his ass beat some more by the NWO. Also, I have a question. What's going on with Bobby Heenan at this point? Like, uh, I think he might be the one who's smashed. I don't, I assume that that's what's going on. But like, Tony Schiavone is mocking him openly on every show. To the they point where like, it's a lot of back and forth. But but it gets bad. There were definitely some shows around this time where I, I don't know if he was drunk, but like he, there's times where Heenan sounded drunk on commentary. Yeah, Super Bowl, which we're about to talk to, Shivani basically bullies Bobby Heenan for the entire duration of the broadcast. Yeah, I mean, in real life, that was not a good relationship. I mean, Heenan really did. But I think their problems came later. Yeah, it just it seemed weird. I don't know if that was like a storyline they were building, but like it to the point where it was like unprofessional being like, oh, you're going to call the replay. Oh, the replay's almost over, bud. You're going to fucking call it. Come on, hurry up. Oh, I, I pitched you that line. You can't even get it, huh? Like, what are you doing? Like, this is Michael Cole heel level shit. So this show did a catastrophic 3.9 rating. Ooh. Uh, worst in a while. I think this set off panic. Um, Maybe that's why everyone got, buried the, the that segment. Absolutely slaughtered by Raw, which did a 5.9. Uh, the show peaked with a 5.0 for the Hogan-Piper match. That still lost to Raw put it on Shane McMahon and Kane against Triple H and X-Pac. Woof. That's pretty embarrassing. Uh, bottomed out with a 3.0 for the finish of the Malenko Benoit versus Enos and Riggs tag match. Of course, the narrative in the dirt sheets at the time was that there was too many backstage segments, but I think the problem here was the matches were too long. Yeah, too many heatless long matches, honestly. Like, I know yeah. that that's painful for people to hear that the wrestling is the problem, but people don't like stale wrestling that means nothing. No, if you're going to put on 15 minute matches, it's really got to be something that matters. You would have been much better off making those matches shorter and just doing more matches. You have plenty of talent. And here's the thing, like people always call for like more wrestling on the show. And like, I understand that, but you have to like retrain your audience to expect that. Like if you're a Nitro fan at this point, a 15 minute like pure wrestling match between people with no storyline going is not what you're accustomed to watching at all. 
I mean, weren't you really confused watching the show? Like, why? I just I just kept looking at my screen confused. Like, why are these matches so long? What is happening? Yeah. I just kept being like, why is this? When there was a second match for Benoit and Malenko, I was like, yeah. why are we doing this? Why? Yeah, like... I was doing laundry watching this and I thought my stream I thought like my stream had frozen or something when I came back and the lucha match was still going. Yeah, exactly. Um there was reportedly a booking meeting where there was a determination determination made to try to bury the following wrestlers. <laughs> this is a hilarious absurd. This is so detailed and specific. I'm surprised they don't have a seating chart from the meeting. Uh, the wrestlers, Bret Hart, Roddy Piper, Conan, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Raven, Canyon, Chris Jericho, and Bam Bam Bigelow. Now, this sounds like an exaggeration. I feel like maybe they had a meeting and they talked about who's over and who's not. And this category was people who aren't over, which, to be fair, I don't think these people are over or were drawing ratings at the time. I think it's very fair to say that, like, hey, these are people we're putting a lot of money and effort into, and Who maybe we can pull They're it not back. clicking. Yeah. Other than Conan, I'd say. I don't mind. The rest of this list, Bam Bam, it didn't work. Raven, Canyon, I enjoy their segments, but where was it going? Benoit Malenko, I mean, we just saw them be absolute ratings death on this show. Piper needed to hang it up by this point. Brett, it wasn't working. Jericho, I really like, but Jericho, I mean, they're going to bury Jericho because he's leaving. Well, that's the thing, yeah. They probably found out around this time. They're like, eh, maybe he's not super attached. Also, this is just, where he's hiding from Bischoff backstage so he doesn't have to sign a new contract. He's also, like, super mad about his role on the show and is being very open about yeah. it. So, like, why would you be pushing that yeah. guy? And one more note before the lightning round. Oh, boy. Friday before this show, February 19th, Goldberg went on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and challenged Steve Austin to a match. He said he'd put up $100,000 of his own money for charity. I watched this segment. Goldberg, it's like he's in the dentist chair. He's so uncomfortable doing this. He, He wants no part of this. They have forced him to do this. His argument at the time was that it would make him look like the lesser star, which it absolutely does. <laughs> sure does, yeah. And desperate. And virtually, Goldberg's just not the kind of guy you should really put on The Tonight Show. He's not a charismatic dude. He's not super I comfortable. Did, I thought he was fine here. And they just, I mean, honestly, they scripted a bunch of Jewish jokes for him. That's fine, yeah. It, it's just, once he gets into that, like, once he has to play his wrestling character on The Tonight Show, he's not hilariously sitting next to him on the couch is kevin costner who's just clowning him the whole time which makes sense oh one of these wrestlers eh yeah yeah this was bush league and they barely ever met they on the next nitro they say something about goldberg throughout the challenge heard around the world but they don't say what it was or replay the clip they backed away from this fast it's just stupid. Like, why does this make any why sense whatsoever? This, I think it was, I thought it was really cool when Bischoff challenged Vince to a fight. Also, like, the video they made for that, where he's just, like, fighting and backstage, he's like, come on, Vince, you want to break my arm? Do it. But he wants to. 
I don't know why I find that so cool and this so lame. I think it's because that felt real. That felt like he was actually challenging Vince to a shoot fight there. He was going to fight Vince if Vince showed up. There's actual heat between Bischoff and Vince. There's no heat between Goldberg and Austin. They don't give a shit about each other. No. Although, sadly, Goldberg admits that people say he's a Steve Austin ripoff when he's making the challenge, which, well, he is. Yeah, that's the problem, is that you already come off as a less cool Steve Austin. Maybe don't bring that up to people. All right. After all that, there's somehow still a lightning round. Jesus Christ, we're going to be at like three hours before the show starts. Let's go! Norman Smiley threw Chavo Guerrero's toy horse Pepe in a wood chipper. Heel Norman Smiley has got to be one of the weirdest <laughs> things I've ever seen in my life. I did not know that he was ever a heel version of himself that spoke and like cut promos. This is ridiculous. The legendary Giant Baba passed away. Oh, rest in peace, Giant Baba. The death of which uh, precipitates the biggest sea change in the history of Japanese wrestling. That deserves its own season. Man, somehow we're going to find a way to talk about, like, the long-form history of Japanese wrestling in the 2000s, because it's maybe the most fascinating thing that ever happened. Sandman debuted as Hardcore Hack. What did you think of Hardcore Hack? I liked having the hardcore matches on the show because it spiced things up, and his matches were actually really good. This match he had with Bigelow on Nitro kicked ass. Yeah, here's the thing is that like so he sobered up and he's decided like this is my shot at the big time. I'm yeah. going to like get in really good shape and have some just good like matches. When he, it's just like when he went to WWE, he got into amazing shape and was a model citizen. Finding out that like Sandman was literally the nicest, most model citizen backstage in WWE, like reading his newspaper and like yeah. helping out with other people's matches and stuff was just so wonderful to hear. Kidman and Ernest Miller reportedly got in a scuffle at a bar. Who have you gotten that one? Not Kidman. What the fuck? Oh. No, that's embarrassing for Ernest Miller if he didn't knock Kidman out. Fucking Kidman is five foot six and a hundred pounds. Ernest the Cat Miller has a hundred pounds and six inches on him, and he's a professional karate instructor. Goldberg's Atlanta Falcons were defeated 34 to 19 by the Denver Broncos in Super Bowl 33. This is, I think, the first Super Bowl I like stayed up all day, watched oh, all the pregame sad. shows. I was so hyped for it, and it was one of the most humiliatingly poor Super Bowls of all time. It was incredibly poorly played and not as close as that final score makes it sound. No, everyone just stopped watching at halftime. Like it was a joke. Yeah, they all flipped over to halftime heat to see the empty arena match. I, Steve, I did not know that was happening. Damn. Do you understand how mad I am looking back? I watched literally nothing but Super Bowl footage all the way through, and no one ever said anything to me about, oh, there's a pretty big wrestling match going on, motherfuckers. Scott Hall had his ankle backed over in a car by a WCW employee what? after he either passed out or fell down in a bar parking lot. Jesus Christ. Maybe that, should, maybe that should have been the hammer. I don't know. I have actually had this happen to me. Uh, oh. Sort of. So I was. He was help- fine. He wrestles on this show. See, that's wild because I was helping to push a dragster. Uh, that my uncle was driving 
and like literally one of the, like the big wheels like rolled over oh, my yeah. foot like backwards like Did it came it from up? behind because i was like in the middle of it oh yeah it snapped every bone in it i was in a cast for like eight months Ugh. yikes so that gives me yeah, PTSD. all was fine i mean it, it was just a regular car and i think back straight over his foot but still somehow <laughs> he was okay continued to wrestle uh, the Giant debuted in the WWF as the Big Nasty Paul White. And everyone in WCW looked at it and said, we were right to let him go. Perry Saturn had a heart attack scare. I don't know, what was going on with heart attack scares in wrestling around this time? I think it was all the cocaine, Steve. Probably. Speaking of heart attack scares, Sid debuted in an ECW show in Detroit to an enormous reaction. I loved hearing about Sid at the time, so he wasn't allowed in the locker room. Like <laughs> he had too much heat. I don't actually know if or if it was just like his gimmick, but what he would do is he was waiting his car across the street, and then like Paul <laughs> would call him and be like, Hey buddy, come on in. And he would walk in his um, gear across the street, bust through the door, and come and powerbomb someone and leave. What was his entrance music in ECW? I can't remember. Was it something Ooh. by Sid Vicious? Oh, that would be smart, but I don't think that it was. You can Google it while I read the next one. Flair reportedly proposed that he would win the title here at Super Brawl and then drop it back to Hogan on the March 1st Nitro in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Love how Flair's trying to get himself buried in Carolina. What is going oh, we've on already done with it that? We've already done it 15 times, so why not do it again? God. The idea that anyone in North Carolina would have any faith in him whatsoever. (laughs) Nitro mascot Wildcat Willie was fired after being viciously booed in every single one of his appearances. I, the idea of even (laughs) having a mascot is so crazy, but like. People were Nitro literally Willy? throwing shit at this guy. Wildcat Willie. I don't know who played Wildcat Willie. That might be worth a Google search, too. I'm really really letting the people down with my research this week. I was traveling last week. Wildcat Willie. ECW was reported to be having financial problems after a number of checks bounced. Yeah, no shit. Okay, so Willie the Wildcat uh, was portrayed by someone named Gary Hendrick. I don't know who the fuck oh, that God. is. Does not even have a Wikipedia page. Lex Luger suffered a torn bicep after bragging about never having been hurt in his career. He blamed Conan for the injury. This is the kind of stuff that made everybody hate Lex Luger backstage. Literally, he... And it was probably that somebody else was had just gotten hurt. And he was like, well, I've never been I hurt. I never get hurt. And then, then he, he tears his bicep. But then he comes back and he's like, oh, must have been Conan who hurt me. I never hurt myself. Fuck off, man. You've caused plenty of injuries. I'm going to quote directly from The Observer on this one. Quote, there was a lot of heat stemming from the recent Jenny Jones show. Didn't see the show, but apparently indie wrestler Rasta the Voodoo Man really outwitted Buff Bagwell and wound up as the star of the show, causing WCW to attempt to get Rasta's stuff edited out of the show. What the fuck? (laughs) What are we talking about here? I just want to be clear. So Rasta the Voodoo Man is some guy. Oh, 
He's the guy who played Terry Tate and Terry Tate office linebacker. What? Yeah, it's the same guy. Wow. Well, of course he outwitted Buff Bagwell. This is actually fantastic. I had no idea this guy wrestled. This is killer. I'm going to look way further into this. The Bret Hart, who are you to doubt El Dandy promo took place? Now that you've watched it in context, does it make more sense than it does when you would hear about it? It was just Brett being a whiny chicken shit. He was complaining about having to defend the belt against Booker T. And Mean Gene asked him who he thinks he should be defending the belt against instead. And he says, El Dandy. And Gene responds, El Dandy is a cruiserweight. You've, you're 50 pounds heavier than him. And Brett rightfully points out that El Dandy is a fine young wrestler. Even though he wasn't young at the time, I think he was like 40. <laughs> Dandy, one of my favorite WCW. Like, why was this guy employed? What a joke. Which is so funny because, like, he was actually, like, a, a huge star in Mexico, one of the best wrestlers in Mexican wrestling for a number of years. And then yeah. you come to WCW and you're just like, oh, look at this ugly jobber guy. <laughs> Fat guy, cowboy stripper. Jesus. It was reported that Ralphus was getting paid an extra $200 per night on top of his normal pay for driving one of the ring trucks for appearing as Jericho's bodyguard. How 200 bucks doesn't seem fair. That's a little light, I think. I don't think, at least in the beginning, he wasn't getting paid anything extra because he no. was just like a like a backstage. He's literally just part of the ring crew. Yeah. And Jericho would like pay him out of his own pocket to do extra stuff. And so finally they give him some money, but he's still just like, well, I guess I'll just make an extra 200 on top of that by driving the truck. Why not? Terry Taylor left WCW for a job in the WWF. Reportedly, Bischoff confronted him about rumors he was talking to the WWF, and Taylor said he needed more money to take care of his sick father. Bischoff offered him unpaid time off, and Taylor proceeded to leave for the WWF. That is such a, an amazing, like, <laughs> pull your punk card move where he's just like, oh, you want time off to look after your dad? Here's some unpaid time off. Please quit. Please quit. I oh, hate yeah. You. You, love, you love your dad so much. Why don't you take some time off to care for him? Fuck Terry Taylor so much. How does he keep getting jobs? How? <laughs> Wrath lost to Disco Inferno, signaling the oh, end of his Jesus. push. Yeah, little Steve was not happy about this development. Wrath was my dude. Also, Disco officially becomes a member of the Wolfpack, yes. which goes against them specifically saying he wasn't going to become a member. No, and no more jabronis. Yeah, it's but it's Sami Zayn bloodline with no payoff. I meant to say, it's Sami Zayn bloodline if they finally were just like, all right, I guess you're a member of the bloodline. And then nothing ever comes of it ever again. He's just a member of the bloodline. <laughs> We already have a Buff uh, Bagwell. Do we really need junior shitty Buff Bagwell? <laughs> Goldberg turned down a guest spot on ER because it would force him to miss an episode of Nitro. What a that fucking was idiot. That would have. Can you imagine? That was like one ER of the five most watched shows of all 20 time. 20 or 30 million people per week watching it. I think George Clooney's still on ER at this, or maybe he's just left at this point. I think he's just left. I think this was the first season without him, but still, this is one of the biggest shows on network TV. And he turned it down because he had they, missed. I mean, they may have told him you can't miss Nitro. He was missing Nitros all the time in this era. Also, like, what the fuck are they going to do? 
honestly. Like, he's seen other people just skip Nitro and no one gives a shit. Chris Jericho would reportedly hide from Bischoff backstage to avoid signing a new contract. That's so fantastic. He literally would, like, tell his friends, like, yo, let me know if Bischoff's coming down the hall so I can hide. And he would just, like, he would just, like, walk when it was time for his match, he would appear and run through the curtain so Bischoff couldn't talk to him. And then he'd, like, leave through the crowd so that Bischoff couldn't find him. Mick Foley called Tony Schiavone about the butts in the seats comment. Schiavone said Bischoff made him do it. Which, of course, he did. Why Mick Foley got such a complex about Shivani personally, as if Shivani had any say in that? Mick Foley is a very petty and sensitive man, as I think we've established. Absolutely, he is. Uh, quoting from The Observer, Samula turned down an offer to come in as a babyface gangsta gimmick. Really? Yeah. That sounds interesting. Quoting from The Observer again, quote, there was an indie show on 212 in Canton, Ohio, which resulted in a major disturbance. Sid Vicious was supposed to appear, but no showed, claiming he had been in a bad car accident the night before. Parentheses, boy, I'd love to be his auto repair man. Wink, wink. When that announcement was made in the building, there was a near riot resulting in several arrests and a local TV and newspaper coverage. The fans were already unhappy because a match was announced as Disciple versus a member of the NWO, and it turned out to be Vincent. Oh. (laughs) We were on fire this month. We've had about five things that could have been the hammer. This is just so fantastic to imagine... They'd be like a member of the NWO, and you'd just be like crossing your fingers because there's like oh, four Hogan, cool ones. Nash, Hall, fuck. They would do this every house show in this era. It would always be Lex Luger versus the NWO, DDP versus the NWO, and then it was Brian Adams. And of course, Michael you'd be all straight. You'd be an idiot to expect yes. like Hogan to show up at your house show. Bob Backlund announced he would be running for Congress in Connecticut as a Republican. That did not work out for him. No, he ran as a libertarian against uh, Congressman John Larson, who, believe it or not, is still in Congress to this day. Wow. I think he might finally be retiring this year. Bless these Democrats in Connecticut who have been steadfastly holding off wrestling dickheads for years. pro wrestlers' asses over and over. Thank God. Scott Steiner started sexually harassing Kimberly Page in kayfabe, as far as I know. His campaign of terror culminated with him throwing her out of a moving car. This was fucking wild. So they do this segment on Nitro where he, she throws, he throws him out of a car after stealing DDP's car. It's not clear if he knew that she was in it when he took the car. He shoves her out. It's clearly a male stunt double with a ponytail who yeah. gets shoved out of the car. And Still, then wow. And they literally say she's in a coma. <laughs> yeah. Surprised she didn't get amnesia and Scott Steiner could have convinced her he was her husband. Man, I should have been writing for this company. That's such good shit. Honestly, you couldn't have done a worse job. Like, literally, like, 10-year-old Steve could not have done a worse job than that was being done at the time. Hogan reportedly tried to get Beefcake brought back to TV. Heard about that hot match she had with Vincent. Literally... 
the idea of him walking into a booking meeting where like Kevin Nash is sitting with Kevin Sullivan and like whoever the fuck else. And he's like, hey, uh, guys, you guys have been writing some good shit lately. Uh, I think there's any room for uh, the booty man. <laughs> I think I know what we're missing these days. Yeah, the Wolfpack's pretty good, brother. But if you really want something cool, you got to get the disciple. Listen, uh, brother. Yeah, listen, brother. I almost got caught with weed at the airport the other day. I really <laughs> need a really need Brudai back in the game. ECW ran through Michigan for the first time, drawing strong crowds in Detroit, Lansing, and Grand Rapids. Everybody backstage thought Sid no showed Lansing and Grand Rapids, but it turned out he was only booked for Detroit. As the Observer said, quote, he will no show at some point. It's just a question of when. I mean, he does eventually no show. So, like, that yeah, is fair. for WCW, and I don't think gave any notice he was. But he actually wasn't under any kind of contract either. Oh. Like, he's made this very clear. You'd sit a contract at this point. What kind yeah, of but, dumbass would you have to be? But literally what Paul's doing is he's just like, Sid's across the street. He yeah. calls him like, all right, come do a powerbomb. He does the powerbomb, gets handed two grand, and then he leaves. It's the biggest pop of the night. And like people are like, he took advantage of everything. It's like, well, actually, if I were in attendance, that would have been the coolest shit I had ever seen. Yeah. You know what I would give to go back in time and go to these shows? About to see, like, fucking little Steve getting to go to an ECW show where Sid shows up. I didn't know that ECW existed at this point. Yeah. I think I, I think I had maybe heard of it by now. It was the Forbidden Underground Wrestling that was on at 2 o'clock in the morning. That was for the adults. Yeah. Jesse Ventura was sworn in as governor of Minnesota by the same judge who ruled in his favor in his lawsuit against the WWF. That must that have been is so satisfying. Shit. Hell yeah. yeah. Oh, we need a judge. How about we get that judge that fucked over McMahon? That would be good. I wonder if you could choose the judge. Probably invited, probably invited Vince to sit in the front row. Oh, yeah, he got to choose him. This was Jesse being petty. That kicks ass. Construction began on the Nitro Grill in Las Vegas. The Nitro Grill. Yeah, it did not. It did not succeed. It did not. <laughs> Although, unlike WWF New York, this wasn't a money loser because somebody just paid them. It was they just licensed, you know, their brand for this. They weren't paying for it. I mean, that's fair. Like, that's yeah. perfectly fine. There's a million things that do that in Vegas. Goldberg testified in Congress in support of banning cockfighting. Yeah, it turns out that Goldberg is like one of the greatest advocates who ever lived against yeah. the sport of cockfighting, which was so weird to find out about. Huge animal rights guy, adopts tons and tons of dogs. Goldberg, finding out that Goldberg was what actually a, nice a super guy. cool dude, yeah. Yeah. Can't say Just it was. for the kids. It did not expect it, but very nice to know. Former American League umpire Larry Young, who refereed the Undertaker versus King Kong Bundy match at WrestleMania 11, promoted an independent show in Rockford, Illinois, which was headlined by the Bushwhackers. What the fuck did you just say to me? What, <laughs> Man, what the hell? Some, there was some lit independent shows happening in the Midwest around this time. That's fucking ridiculous. The debut of Roller Jam on TNN did a 1.7 rating. Heyman always complained about Roller Jam. Maybe you should have done better ratings than Roller Roller Jam did, Paul. 
I was a dedicated viewer of Roller Jam. Oh, really? Oh, God. Shit. The one time I did, I turned it on, and I was like, this is just fake-ass pro wrestling. This is embarrassing. Yeah, of course it was. That was my shit. And then, when I was in college, I met a girl who did roller derby, and I was very confused, because I was like, isn't it a work? No, it turns out real roller derby is very much not a work. (sighs) This girl was not into me, believe it or not. Yep, fair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brock Lesnar, at the time a junior at Minnesota, was shouted out in the Observer as a likely future star in pro wrestling. Good job, Dave. You fucking called that one. At an indie show in Hackleburg, Indiana, the ring announcer asked if people knew who Road Dog was, and they all cheered. He then asked if they knew who his father was, and everyone sat there silently. And then Bob Armstrong came out to no reaction. God, that's so much more humiliating than just getting no reaction. And the fact that Meltzer wrote this, like, what did Bob Armstrong? Is that, is that actually newsworthy? Okay, but it's hilarious. Do you imagine that Meltzer had like a good chuckle about that for like 20 yes. minutes? <laughs> I hope that Bob Armstrong like once fed him some bad info when he was getting back at him. <laughs> you guys know who Road Dog is? Yeah, holy yeah! shit, we're going to get to see Road Dog. You know his yeah! dad? What? Oh, made some crack about him being faster than a speeding bullet and he tore in half. The best part is that could have applied to any other member of the Armstrong family. It could have been Brad or Brian. All right, we finally come to the hammer, and it was stiff competition this week, but I feel like I made the right choice. Oh, boy. I'm scared. WCW filmed a pilot for a show for Latinos that would air on Univision. The show opened with Disco Inferno, Chris Jericho, and Johnny Swinger dancing to mariachi music and calling the crowd wetbacks. What? (laughs) Believe it or not, this never made air. Oh, 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 okay. (laughs) What the fuck? Who booked this shit? Here's the thing, it might have been Conan. I don't know. He's like, gotta get some heat, brother. (laughs) What are we gonna do? Let's get some race heat. Well, in Mexico, that's how white heels do get Yeah, heat, But that's not how you launch a television show. The idea that this, like, this, if this had made air, I think Bischoff would have gotten fired over it. Oh, my God. If, like, if Ted Turner had found out about this, it oh, would have yeah. been over with. His head would have fucking rolled. Can you believe? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, well, I don't know Johnny Swinger, but totally brand for both Jericho and Disco. Yeah, see, it almost makes sense if they do that, and then the Latino World Order shows up and 20 luchadors beat their fucking asses. Whoop that trick! Whoop that trick! (laughs) Yeah. I was so scared for a minute you were going to be like, it's psychosis on a lawnmower. But no, that also (laughs) happened another time. That also already happened. Actually not yet. That'll happen seven years from now in WWE. Jesus Christ, they can't catch a break. Yeah, it would have been amazing if this had been like the WWE show in Puerto Rico. And then 
every Latino legend in history showed up and whooped their asses. Yep. This is almost okay. as, this is just as bad as when WWE did this exact same thing and put Bruce Pritchard in charge of it. And he was like, what if it was just nothing but midget wrestling? <laughs> what, if was, what if it was racist? <laughs> Bruce knows some Mexicans. Put him in charge. I guess we should talk about the show. I suppose. <laughs> Sunday, February 21st, 1999. At the Oakland Arena in Oakland, California. Interesting that they ran Oakland instead of the Cow Palace. They'd run the Cow Palace for Super Brawl the previous couple years. I mean, the Cow Palace is a dump, so maybe that's it. That is weird now that you mention it. Yeah. Great crowd. Almost $16,550,000 gate and $118,000 in merchandise sales. You can tell Zane Breslov is working for WCW when Meltzer is getting the merch sales, too. That's true. And the gate to the penny. And a liquid hot uh, crowd, too. Like, this crowd is all in. Show does a monster 1.1 buy rate for 485,000 buys. I think this is the third biggest WCW pay-per-view ever, only beaten by Hogan's Sting. And uh, the Bash at the Beach with Rodman and Malone. Now, when people talk about this show, most of the time what they're talking about is what a surprise it was that the show performed so well. No, they're doing red hot business all the way in. Huge ratings. It's not a surprise. The surprise is why it spikes so much from where the other ones are around this time. But honestly, I got to tell you, like, the angle is hot. Hogan and Flair are big, big stars. Like, it makes sense. And it turns out that, like, the stuff going on in WWE right now isn't super interesting. Like, this is the year, this is the month where they put on St. Valentine's Day Massacre and no one wants to buy it. They came pretty close to beating that. They only, like, WWE won, but I mean, I think that show did like 550,000, which. Hard to say. I mean, feels like a little disappointment for people finally getting to see Austin beat up McMahon. Oh, yeah, they were expecting like a million, and they didn't get yeah. anywhere remotely near that. So, yeah, this is up from the 415,000 buys they did the previous year for Sting Hogan, too. That's incredible to beat Sting Hogan, even if it was the rematch. It really is. Like, they do an amazing job here. Maybe if Sting had gotten a fucking tan, that would have been this one. But Jesus couldn't Christ, do that. Sting, if you could just get in a goddamn tanning bed. On commentary, the venerable team of Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Like you said, definitely some weird tension going between Schiavone and Heenan at this point. I just don't ever really remember Schiavone trying no. to show someone else up. It just it feels weird. Uh, we open with a point of view segment of Tori Wilson in a sheet on a bed. She really wants to order some room service. Uh, taking her lessons from the Hulkster, apparently. She literally says, like, oh, are you okay? Uh, basically, like, she's basically telling this guy, like, hey, I'm sorry I fucked you so hard. Are you yeah. still are you all right? Conspicuously, there's a big black thing on okay. the bed. So the first time we watched the show, I did not have any context for this time. So I was absolutely certain that was a giant dildo that they had on the bed. 
It's a stun gun. Yeah, Come now on, I understand it's the same stun gun that was used on Goldberg at Starcade, but I did not but know that last she, time. Doesn't it feel like, oh yeah, sorry I used it on you last night? Well, yeah, the implication is that they definitely just fucked with this cattle prod. That's a bad idea. Some people are into that. I guess they are, yeah. Fucking Klondike Bill. And then... She finds out they're going to Super Brawl, and she gets really excited. They, she treats this like, like, oh my god, you've taken me oh, on the vacation the of my dreams. Yeah. I gotta call all my girlfriends. Motherfucker, you. <laughs> what do you mean? He works there. Pro tip, your girlfriend wants jewelry, not tickets to a wrestling show. Now, maybe that's not true. I've, I mean, all the times I've taken my wife to wrestling shows, that's what she said. But maybe next time. <laughs> One of these times. You know, again, I like I actually really like these segments. I'm it's an intriguing mystery. Like the, it's very clear that whoever this person is is going to be an important part of the show. And so when the person shows up later and does what they do, like it makes yeah. a ton of sense and it's exciting. The actual reveal isn't great. It would have been much cooler if it had been a wrestler debuting or, you know, something better than this. But, you know. Frequently in wrestling, the destination is better than the result with these mysteries, right? Yes, it's all about the journey. It's all about the higher power is a lot more fun until you find out who it is. Uh, The promo package has each guy in a top match rotating in shadows as the audio of their big wins plays. I thought that was kind of cool. This is extremely cool. I love this idea. Of them just like, here are all the great champions of this company. It's it's Ric Flair, it's Dusty Rhodes, it's Lex Luger. It's it's very cool to have all of them here. Uh, Dusty Rhodes was a weird choice because I didn't know he even still worked here. And also, like, for some reason, they're like rotating around and they're not looking at the camera. Except Lex Luger, who can't help but stare directly into it. <laughs> Fucking Luger. <laughs> Opening match, Disco Inferno versus Booker T. Um, this match was set up on Thunder when Disco interrupted Booker and Stevie Ray talking backstage. Disco asked if this was a brother thing, which could have been interpreted as racist. Um, yes, it absolutely could have because it's Disco Inferno saying it. Yeah. Um, man, Booker looks awesome here. He is in incredible shape, and I thought this black gear he was wearing looked great. It is so clear that they know that they have something in Booker and that it's time to go with him, but there's just so much stop start with him during this time, you it know? Just, they just he's on TV every week getting wins, but it's just there's just no bigger story for him here. They don't really have him. He's not really feuding with anybody. He's not really pursuing any particular goal. They've been teasing they're going to do something with him and Stevie Ray, but they never actually do. There's like 10 guys on top of this company, and if you're not working with one of those guys, you're not really doing shit. And he just can't get a program with any of those guys. I don't know why. Like, literally, all of those guys have to leave before he gets a main event program, and it doesn't make any sense. The uh, crowd was surprisingly hot for this one. It's This is one of the – it's good to open – I know sometimes we talk about the opening match, like, oh, it sucks to be the opening match. You're going to get a hot crowd for the opening match. Yeah. Um, Disco gets probably way, way, way too much offense in this match. Yeah. 
Like Booker does a bunch of shit to Disco. Can you tell he's friends with the Booker? Yeah. Not not Booker C. He's also the only member of the Wolfpack who doesn't come out to the Wolfpack music, and that felt weird to me. I love how in the middle of his disco theme, they have the wolf howl. That made me chuckle. Disco fever! Disco dancing werewolf. (laughs) What a character that would have been. They should have called him that. Oh, the full moon goes up and he gets funky. (laughs) He can only win during a full moon. Turns into Teen Wolf. Uh, Booker gets to do all his signature stuff and then he wins with the Harlem Hangover in about 10 minutes. He knocked the shit out of Disco with this Harlem Hangover. This seems like the most dangerous move in wrestling. Every time I saw him hit this thing, it looked like he killed the guy with it. What also drives me crazy because like, There are two ways for the Harlem hangover to go. If you're far enough away across the ring, then Booker will do the thing where he like lays out his leg, like stretches it out and you're going to take a regular leg drop. But if you're too close to the ropes, he's got to do like a somersault and then hit you with the side of his foot. And so like he pushes Disco off hard, but Disco goes like five feet and Disco settles in and you can see Booker looking down at him like, well, (laughs) I guess we're doing it the hard way. Next up, Chris Jericho versus Saturn. Of course, Saturn lost a match to Jericho last month and was forced to wear a dress for 30 days as a result. The announcers point out it's been over 30 days, but Saturn is still wearing the dress. I love how the storyline would be repeated 10 years later with Vito in WWE. And both times, the person gets super over as a baby face yep. because the crowds love fucking drag queens. They fucking love them. Cross-dressing is over. Like, it's, yeah, every single time. Ralphus is wearing a dress as he accompanies Jericho. Jericho is also accompanied by Scott Dickinson, his crooked personal referee, who is going to officiate this match. I love the idea, not only of having a crooked referee, but he comes down with you from your for your entrance yeah. to make it wildly obvious that he's corrupt. Jericho gets on the mic and calls Saturn a cross-eyed, cross-dressing freak. Sure. It's fair. Guess. Uh, Saturn rips off Ralphus's dress, which I don't think any of us needed to see. No. No, no. Not at all. Uh, it's a good match here. A lot of good high spots. I really like the spot towards the end of the match where Jericho hits a crossbody but Saturn rolls through it into the rings of Saturn. That was cool. No, it's a good match. Like, these guys are both good, and they put in some work here. Uh, Saturn gets frustrated with Dickinson and hits him with the Death Valley driver, and then he walks out and gets counted out. And then on the way out, he says, life's a drag. While the announcers are speculating, like, I wonder and why so he did is this. he. Yeah, obviously he has decided that this is what's going to be his thing from now on. And honestly, that's fine. He's the same guy who pitched doing a Marilyn Manson gimmick earlier. So like this, he clearly wants to do some alternative shit. Let him. He won't conform to society's rules and expectations. Funnily at one point, Tony Schiavone points out that like, well, if you take the flowers off of the dress, it's just no different than any singlet anybody else is wearing. (laughs) A good Good, point. A good point, Tony. 
Next up for the cruiserweight title, Billy Kidman defends against Chavo Guerrero. These two were paired in the tag team tournament, and Chavo turned on Kidman after they lost. What I loved about this tournament was basically every team that lost broke up afterwards. I do love that. Like, and basically that was their entire tag division that all split up. So by the end of the tournament, there are no tag teams left. Um, Kidman got a huge push at Starcade when he beat Ray and Hoovy in a triple threat and then beat Eddie in a match after that. Um, I don't know. He just hasn't had a lot of momentum since then. I feel like the cruiserweight division kind of got derailed when Eddie got hurt and they broke up the LWO and Kidman's sort of just getting lost in the shuffle as a result. Yeah, there's going to be a cruiserweight renaissance in like six months when they debut a bunch of new cruiserweights. But until then, we're just kind of spinning our wheels. Zero heat for this. It's not a bad match, but the crowd just doesn't care. I, I don't really like either of these guys that much. Chavo sucks. Let me just say, baby Chavo here, now he doesn't even have Pepe and the crazy gimmick. He's just a dude again, and he's ass. Is Chavo Guerrero the most overrated wrestler in history? I don't even know how rated he is, really. Like, I feel like for a while he just kind of had the Eddie dust on him and people assumed he was good. I think Chavo Guerrero has benefited from nepotism more than any other professional wrestler ever. And that is saying really something. saying something. We were just talking about Brutai, and I think brother fucking Brutus Beefcake is better than Chavo Guerrero. <sighs> Kidman gets the win with the shooting star press. Cool. Next up for the tag titles, Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko against Kurt Hennig and Barry Windham in the finals of the tournament. I believe the, these titles became vacant because Rick Steiner was injured, but these these tag like the tag division had just become a joke in 1998. They were like the teams kept, the belts kept getting vacated, the teams kept breaking up. Sting beat the Giant in a match where he won both tag belts by beating him. And then Rick Steiner became the champion with Buff Bagwell as his partner, even though Bagwell had turned on him. And then I think he got to pick his partner and he picked Kenny Chaos from High Voltage. Which is uh, okay, I guess. That's a choice. Yeah. Anyway, they're trying to revive, revive the tag division. Bischoff, I'd say, notoriously hated tag wrestling. For the same reason that Vince does, because you're paying two people paying instead of one. Guys. I mean, that's not really a consideration with WCW, though, because these guys are on guaranteed contracts. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think you just didn't like tag wrestling, which honestly, in yeah. WCW, I didn't really like it either, because the ring's so fucking small. It doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Like, there's not enough that's room for four point. guys. So this was an unusual tournament. It was a round-robin double elimination tournament. Did Shawn Michaels book this shit? Surprised there were some kind of points involved here. I love that Shawn Michaels has gone from the commissioner who knows all the rules to the booker who makes the most un- <laughs> ridiculously in-depth, detailed gimmick matches in the world. Yeah, we're doing rounds and... what. It's like rounds, and if it's a draw, there's a vote. of the. There, there judges in the rounds? I can't remember. I think there were judges, yes. Man. Sure. Or these ludicrous Iron Man matches with points and a penalty box. Anyway. 
Hennig and Wyndham beat Malenko and Benoit earlier in the tournament. So the stipulation here is Benoit and Malenko have to win two falls in a row. Hennig and Wyndham only have to win one fall. And let me just say, like, this is kind of sort of vaguely G1-like. And it like, is a little bit. A lot of the drama for the G1 is, like, when it comes down to that last night and there's still a couple people in the running and can they win their matches and actually get in and will they wind up accumulating enough points? But you know what the G1 has that this doesn't? 30 years of people learning how the fuck the G1 works so yeah. they understand the stakes. This I, makes no sense. 100%, 100% when Malenko and Benoit get the fall, the crowd thinks they won the titles. Of fucking course they do. Because it doesn't. it's fucking stupid to do it this way. Like, I don't understand why this isn't just a singles match. Like, it does not make sense. It, it It's not necessary. Yeah, I would have just done this one fall to a finish, I think. Yes. Uh, Benoit and Malenko beat Brian Adams and Horace in a cage match on Thunder to get to the finals. Benoit did a diving headbutt off the top of the cage. I mean, that's cool. It doesn't seem like you need to do that to beat Horace fucking Hogan, but all right. Did they do that on Thunder instead of on the pay-per-view? That's the thing. This although, to match, be, although, to be fair, more people were watching Thunder. That is true. I'll say this, too. What should have happened is that Hennig and Wyndham should have just beaten Benoit and Malenko on Nitro for the belts, and then this should be the rematch. Like, that would make perfect sense. You could That's put it idea. in a cage, and he could jump off the fucking cage. Why not? Uh, the Observer, Meltzer, made an interesting point about Wyndham, which is just that he's too big. He's so gigantic that he just makes people look small, but you can't push him because he's old and broken down and boring. It's a good point. Wyndham is like 6'7". Like he is one of the biggest guys in the entire company. And like so, But the mid-card is full of guys who are smaller, so he can't wrestle like – he looks like Andre the Giant against Chris Benoit. Oh, he's like a foot taller than Dean Malenko. It's a joke. Uh, Shivani talks about the tradition in this match. Malenko, Hennig, and Wyndham are all second-generation wrestlers. Heenan says that referee Mickey J is also second-generation. His dad refereed peewee football in Moline, Illinois in the 1940s. That's pretty good improv, honestly. Yeah. This is a very long match. The first fall goes close to 20 minutes. The crowd is not into it until like the very, very end. No, I think if you're going to do it, if you're going to do it this way, I think Malenko and Benoit should have probably gotten a quick first fall and then go, go into sudden death. Yeah. To do it this way is ridiculous because the implication is that we have like another 20 minutes left to go after the yeah, first we fall. Don't, thankfully. Yeah. I did dig the finish. Malenko gets Wyndham in the Texas Cloverleaf and Hennig breaks it up. And then as the referee's putting Hennig out of the ring, Malenko just puts him back in the Cloverleaf and Wyndham taps out. And then instead of taking like the 30 second rest period to actually like rest, Malenko goes over to fuck with Wyndham some more and Wyndham just slaps his belt around Malenko's yep. neck and chokes him into unconsciousness. Man, Malenko looked like he was turning blue here. This choke went on for a long time. Here's the best part. So as he the belt's still around Malenko's neck, Wyndham drapes his arm over him, but he drapes it he over still, the belt so the ref yeah, can't he's see still it. Choking him during the pin. Yeah, and so like and after like 
the pin happens, he slides the belt over to Hennig outside the ring. Like, it's so well done. They do a great job of I, that. I did enjoy I, – I enjoyed the West Texas Rednecks. I thought they were a fun act. They, they Particularly fun Kurt Hennig pretending to be – Kurt Hennig being from Minnesota, being a Southern Redneck was fun. I, I regret that they didn't come along earlier because, like, this would have been a really great team to go up against, like, Harlem Heat and, like yeah. – uh, Ming and the Barbarian and like Nash and Hall, like the, they would have been big enough to go with those guys. You know what this sets up for uncensored? What's that? A belt whipping match. A belt whipping match. Our favorite Hell southern flavored yeah. bullshit. It's a it's like it's like lumberjacks where they all have belts. Sadly, not a fans' revenge match. We will always refer to the fans' revenge. It's not even fun if they didn't just go on a message board and find a bunch of jabronis out there. <laughs> Please, Tony Khan, if you're listening, give us Jeff Jarrett in a fans' revenge match, and only let it be like whatever like the horrible washed up garbage at the bottom of message boards let those dudes do the belt whipping because that's what tna did they got a bunch of the weirdest motherfuckers in the world bunch of dudes who have never played a sport in their lives you could only do it if you submitted a video of yourself pretending to whip somebody so literally it'd just be a bunch of guys in like their basement like swinging their belt around with no shirt on Oh. And then we've got the hair versus mask match. Conan and Rey Mysterio against the Outsiders. They promoted this as Conan and Mysterio against Nash and Luger, but Luger has a bicep injury, so Hall is going to take his place here. Hall has to do double duty. He's going to wrestle Piper for the U.S. title later on. Um yeah, crucial bit of context from this that I got from watching Nitro is that the feud is actually between Luger and Ray. I had no yeah. idea that that was the case. Yeah, Luger was just being a dick to Ray, and Conan is defending his friend, and Nash kind of got dragged into it. And they bet Liz's hair. It's Elizabeth that's on the line here. Which is very funny, actually. It's Liz very is like, chicken what the fuck? Shit by Na- very chicken shit by Nash and Luger that neither of them are putting their hair up. We're not really going to get a chance to talk about this for the rest of this match. So let's just go ahead and say ahead of time that Liz here is one of the hottest women I've ever seen in my life. Smoking hot. Understand why Luger. Understand how Luger ended up trying to get with her. She is like the hottest divorced mom ever to walk the earth. Oh, and she's such a bad, bad person at this point. She's so evil. I love it. But, but it's also so funny that she's still unbelievably awkward in the ring she's still and doing kind of, anything. Yeah, awkward and sweet at the same time, even as she's interfering and cheating. Yeah, she's been doing this for 20 years, and she still has that air that, like, this is the first time she's ever jumped on the apron. Yeah. Uh, Bischoff's been trying to get this mask off Ray for years. He wanted to unmask him all the way back at Halloween Havoc 97, but Ray wouldn't do it and I think got his lawyer involved. Here, I have no idea why he goes along with it. Maybe he got a nice new contract out of it. Well, I'm sure they're saying that, like, hey, we're going to give you, like, a nice contract. We're going to push the shit out of you, which they do. You can't say that they don't push Ray. He's so much less of a star without the mask. Yeah, it's a horrible idea. He's so diminished. It's clear that they thought that, like, oh, hey, like, it worked for Hoovy. Hoovy looks fantastic, which, of course, he did. Yeah. Because 
Hoovy's Hoovy's like movie. Hoovy looks like a pop star. Yeah, yeah. Ray looks like a kid. That's the thing, is that Ray looks like a child, and it's amazing I that they couldn't figure that out. I can almost hear Nash explaining, like, the psychology of kids will really associate with Ray because he looks like one of them. And maybe that's honestly a decent point. Maybe. I don't know. Also, Nash is personally like, I'll put you over. Yeah. So, okay, let's let's skip to the end of this match because it's really pretty interesting how they do this. So, like, I have one totally random note. Did you notice that Hall is wearing one of his purple Razor Ramon elbow pads under his NWO elbow pad? No, that's weird. Sharp eye I had here. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't. I love the idea that maybe like he they stopped making those particular elbow pads and he really liked them, so he wears it and then he wears one on top of it, or maybe it was a lucky pad or something. I maybe one day he was just like, one day I'm gonna rip this shit off and go back to being razors. Okay, so we get to the end of this match, and what happens is Ray goes for a, a like a, a springboard moonsault on Nash, and he knocks him the fuck out with his knee brace. Nash is sprawled out on the ground unconscious. Ray goes to pin him, but instead Hall picks him up and hits him with the outsider edge, yeah. drags the unconscious Nash on top of him, and gets the pin. Now, do you feel like this adequately protected Ray? Because it's clear that the idea here is, yeah. well, you're going to lose, but you're going to knock Nash the fuck out. Had Nash beat, and yeah, he gets beat by the outsider's edge, but of course he does. Hall got him 10 feet up in the air on that thing. But honestly, I thought this was a good way to protect Ray. Like, I thought this did what it was supposed to do. Yeah, and Ray is going to beat Nash clean on Nitro the night after this. Which is pretty, which is clearly just Nash being like, see, I did a job. Any of you can do it's, a job. It's Nash leading by example, which somehow is always spun as a negative whatever. But it, it, he tells everybody, everybody needs to do jobs. And then he puts over the smallest guy in the company. Sleeping by example. Now, is it passive aggressive? Sure, but it's Maybe. not. That's one way to manage. Sure, whatever. Who should he be? Who should he be losing to? Booker T. Clean. <laughs> A good point. <laughs> uh, Ray has to unmask. It, the crowd doesn't care. Gets no reaction. That's the thing. You should, really should have built this up for a while, right? Like. This feud could have gone on for like a month or two before it got to this point because you went Nash isn't even invested in this match. Like this has been like a two week storyline. Why we could should have had like some matches before this, some matches building up. Conan beats Luger in a match or Ray Ray need, badly needed like a win over Luger in order to make this a credible thing. And it seemed like that's what they wanted to do. They just never got around to it. Yeah, match was fine. Yeah, I liked it. It's just, it was a missed opportunity for Conan and Ray. It really is. Next up, TV title, Scott Steiner defends against Diamond Dallas Page. Steiner cut starts off with a promo. He is massively over as a babyface, despite being such a vile piece of shit. This thing that he does where he goes into the front row and he lifts a woman who's obviously a plant yeah. out out of the audience, brings him into the ring, calls her a hoochie to her face, lets her rub him up, and then sends her back to her seat is really good. 
cuts a pre-match promo saying he'll take anybody's woman if he wants to. And then he says that what happened to Kimberly wasn't his fault. He literally says it in the same way Snitsky yes. says it. And I marked out hard for that. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. Summarizing this match, Scott Steiner beat DDP and he beat him and he beat him and he beat him and he beat him and then he beat him some more. And then he choked him into unconsciousness. <laughs> just jobbed the man out. And let's just say, like, putting this back to back with Ray having his mask taken and humiliated in that way. Like, they protected Ray in that one. But, like, if you're a fan watching at home, this is like a one-two gut punch for baby faces, right? It was probably DDP's idea. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it was. DDP's like, oh, I got to put over book himself getting his ass kicked. That's how he got over. But this one... When a man has literally, like, thrown your wife out of a moving car and then he beats the shit out of you and jobs you out, that... I don't know, man. Like... It's hard to come back from that. DDP, they do a stretcher job for DDP, and the crowd chants DDP sucks as he's being stretchered out. God, that <laughs> must be so painful. If you're on the stretcher, w- wouldn't you just be yeah. like, can I just get up and just walk back then? Because this is trash. It's not working. Do you remember when this happened to Triple H when Randy Orton punted him? Yes. It was hilarious. The crowd did the Hey, Hey, Goodbye song. Well, they also cheered like shit when the punt happened. They yeah. were like, fuck yeah. Got the shit out of Triple H. Randy Orton was the baby face in that feud, which said a lot, considering that he like sexually assaulted Triple H's wife in the middle of it. Yeah, just, like, just like Scott Steiner and Kimberly here. Yep. We go backstage to Mark Madden and Bam Bam Bigelow, who says he's not afraid of Goldberg. Man, as a kid, I thought Bam Bam Bigelow was just a worthless piece of shit here. Did you really? I didn't know I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything about him. And I felt like he just came off like a washed up fat guy. But he does come off that way. He seems so yes. lazy and disinterested. <sighs> Mark Madden is such a deplorable piece of shit. And he's a terrible interviewer. So he's just asking. He's asking a bunch of questions that have no like lead to them. He's just like, "Oh, Bam Bam Bigelow, I bet you think you're pretty big, and uh, you think you're bigger than Goldberg." That's not a good question. Shut the fuck up. Bam is just so like, "Yeah, I can beat Goldberg. I can beat anybody. I'm bigger than Goldberg. I don't care." You think you could throw Goldberg? Yep. Yeah, I do. Oh, all right. Next up, Roddy Piper versus Scott Hall for the U.S. title. God, why do we have to sit through more Roddy Piper matches? Also, why does this have to be Scott Hall? You couldn't find anybody else. Like, the guy, well, they got to get the belt off Piper, but they should. It should. Bret Hart or Booker should have just beat Bret Hart for this belt. Yeah, putting this on Piper at all. Also, it's so risky to put belts on Piper because his history throughout time is I ain't doing no fucking jobs. <laughs> It's an awful match, as you would expect. Hall ends up getting the win with a cradle with his feet on the ropes after Disco and Nash interfere. And then there's this bizarre post-match segment where multiple times they have to get the belt away from Piper. And it just feels like he's going into business for himself. And, like, I don't know if he was supposed to, but they have to, like, they have to like, get themselves out of this standoff where Piper has the belt and he won't give it up. 
which is symbolic really this genuinely feels like a moment where everyone involved is like is he really not going to give this back because like i don't know what we can do about that and then he throws the belt down and runs away from holland nash and says something unintelligible on the mic it's it's, this is miserable it feels like doing a lot of stuff to appease piper here which which you have to do just to get the belt back. But yeah. in that case, why the fuck did you give it to him? Don't put belts on Piper. It's real risky. Yeah. This he guy might just famously won't job to anybody. He fucking retired rather than do jobs. Like, that's that's how his first WWE run ended. Is he's basically like, no, no, thanks for pushing me all those years, but I ain't doing no fucking jobs. He could have been WWF champion several times, but they wouldn't put the belt on him because they knew he wouldn't lose it. They would have let him beat Hogan, except that they knew for a fact that he would never return the job. Oh, there would have been so much money in Hogan chasing him. Yes. Oh, man. Then we got Goldberg against Bam Bam Bigelow. Bam Bam came to WCW back in November and immediately went after Goldberg. In storyline, he's not under a contract, and he just keeps getting booked in matches because he won't go away. That's pretty funny. He doesn't. He still doesn't have entrance music because they're playing up that he's not part of the roster. I love that idea that just, like, so does that make all of these like uns like certified matches? Can he just like murder people in the ring then? Is that what we're doing? I guess. Him I and guess. Goldberg had a parking lot fight uh, before Starcade. That's pretty cool. Uh, weirdly, Goldberg is introduced as being from Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is the hometown of Jake Roberts, not Goldberg. It's also the racism capital of the world, so like that's weird. <sighs> I mean, maybe Goldberg had built a house out there and moved there, but he was always introduced as being from Atlanta. He Goldberg grew up in Oklahoma. He's from Tulsa, but he was always introduced. I mean, he lived in Atlanta. He was training at the power plant, and he was always introduced as being from Atlanta. It's a very strange choice. Um. Bigelow tries for a cross body, but Goldberg catches him out of the air and slams him. That was pretty fucking impressive. Bigelow's a big, big dude. Um, this match goes way too long. This should have been five minutes. Instead, they go over ten. Bam Bam does not look good. I just whatever all the steam he had had from his ECW run seems to have gone out of him here. Well, also, there's lessons about his ECW run which were not learned, which is Bam Bam looks fantastic against smaller dudes. He might be the perfect cruiserweight bully. They should have had him come in and just start murdering luchadors, (laughs) throwing them into the second row and shit. Uh, Bigelow hits a diving headbutt. Goldberg kicks out. He goes up again. Goldberg throws him off. Goldberg sets up to spear him, and Bigelow just rolls out of the ring, which I appreciated. Very smart. Good job, it's Bigelow. Like a, like a young Samoa Joe was watching this and was like, yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. I don't think enough is made of the fact that Samoa Joe very clearly patterned a lot of himself around Bam Bam Bigelow. Like, a lot of his whole deal is Bam Bam. Uh, Bigelow gets back in the ring and gets his fat ass speared. 
He sure does. A second spear and a jackhammer get the win for Goldberg. Not good. Yay, Goldberg. And then it's main event time for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Hollywood Hogan defends against the nature boy, Ric Flair. This is what the world's come to see. It Michael sure is. Buffer is out to do the introductions. This is a hot, hot main event. This is... I found myself getting really excited about it. Like, I actually, I was, like, on the Steiner-DDP match, and I stopped that one to skip ahead to this because I really wanted to know what was going to happen. They hadn't wrestled in a long time is the thing. They hadn't wrestled since 96. Like, it feels fresh, but not yeah. just fresh, but it also feels like this might be the there's last also, time. And there's a lot of lore to it. This was the dream match in the 80s. This is yeah. the match we always wanted, and we got it in WCW. It's the match that really launched WCW, got them out of obscurity, turned a lot of people onto the product. There's just It's always special with these two. This just feels like the rivalry in wrestling history. It's two different styles, two different philosophies, two different regions of the country collide in. And also, Flair never really got the win. Like It was pretty much no. dominated by Hogan. <laughs> No, I don't think he's ever beaten Hogan. So if you're a WCW fan, you must be excited at the prospect that he might actually win this time. So, age check. Hogan's 45. Flair is a few days from turning 50. God, Flair looks better than Hogan. He does. Although, man, Hogan tanned hard for this one. Yeah, Hogan does not look bad. Don't get me wrong. Flair just looks much younger than that. Hogan is out first to the Wolfpack music. He has got some new ring gear and some white boots. Gonna turn the pole, gonna turn the territory around with these white boots. Is this the exact same gear he wore at WrestleMania 19? Or 18 or whatever it, that was? I think it is. He did wear the white boots. You know, I don't think, no, I think it was, a, a, I don't remember. These boots have his face airbrushed on them like the ones he wore at WrestleMania did. I don't think they do, but it's the same yeah. lightning bolt pants. I can tell you that. Yeah. Oh, he looks awesome. This is a great look. Oh, it's a fantastic look. He looks unbelievable. Way better than the cool jeans. You can also tell that they're already trying to get across the whole he's going to turn face thing. That must already be the plan. Because Shivani's already going like, he's a magnificent athlete. No matter what he's done before, we have to acknowledge he's one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, and the NWO is crazy. I mean, the the NWO has been crazy over all night. It's Oakland. They love the NWO. Oh, fuck yeah. Northern California has always kind of been a heel territory. And then you add in, you know, it's the, the Oakland Raiders playing Oakland. They love heels. Hell yeah. Uh, they fight out on the floor early. Hogan hits Flair in the head with a chair and Flair blades. Man, this turned out to be a gusher from Flair. God, I'm, I wasn't surprised there was blood, but this is wild. Flair goes up top. Hogan throws him off. Flair fires up. He starts throwing some chops. Hogan pulls off the belt. He whips Flair with it. I love how much mileage hogan gets out of the weight belt in wcw this is half his matches is the weight belt i also love that cody rhodes learned so much from that like they're the only <laughs> yes. two people who have ever done it 
And Cody's just like, how can I take less bumps? I know. Hogan taught me the perfect lesson. What if I get the hell whipped out of me with a belt every single match? And now he gives the belt to the kids in the front row? That's such a better gift than, like, some sunglasses, man. Uh, Flair hits a couple low blows to turn the tide. A lot of booze for that. Yeah. Flair definitely working some heel shit here. Flair always wanted to be a heel. He never wanted to be a baby face. Well, especially in a big match like this. Like, what babyface offense does Ric Flair even have? Yeah, that's credible against Hogan. Not much. Not much. Uh, he starts whipping Hogan with the belt. At this point, Tori Wilson comes down the aisle. Shivani does acknowledge they've seen her on Nitro and Thunder, so apparently he's been watching the tape. Well, with Tori Wilson on the tape, you're damn right that yeah, pervert's been did. watching the tape. She proceeds to slap Flair. Ref gets bumped. Hogan goes for the leg drop, but Flair moves. A masked man comes down the aisle. He didn't think it's Bischoff. Here's the interesting thing about this match. Good job, Heenan, not ruining the surprise this time. Yeah. If I were Heenan, I would never try to guess ever after accidentally guessing correctly the time before. (laughs) Accidentally spoiled the biggest twist in wrestling history. But yes, it's clearly a slightly built person. Like, it's not like a big star wrestler. That's pretty clear. Could be Brood Eye. Could be Brood Eye. Should have been Brood Eye. Uh, masked man zaps Flair with the stun gun. Hogan gets the one, two, three. Huge pop for Hogan winning. And then the masked man unmasks to reveal David Flair. He makes out with Tori. Turns out he sold out his dad for a woman, which is very believable that a horny 19-year-old dude would turn on his dad for a hot woman. Yeah, let's be clear. As much as they don't establish the motivation behind, like, Nash giving up the title to Hogan, the idea that a 19-year-old would abandon his father, who was a shitty dad and never came to his football games and stuff like that, just for, like, the hottest woman in the world who will bang him 24 hours a day is the most believable thing that has ever been aired. Yeah. Like, she just got in his head. Wasn't that hard to do. Hogan, the master manipulator, master of psychology, fed her everything she needed to say. I also love the idea, well, first of all, I love the idea of Hogan being like, all right, Tori, now this is how you're going to seduce the boy. (laughs) Like Vince teaching Kelly how to dance in his office. Uh, But I also love the idea that, like, David really wanted this. And, like, his initiation into the NWO, basically every NWO member does get their ass kicked before they join. Like, that's a whole motorcycle gang thing that they do. And yeah. we watched it happen and never never suspected. So, yeah, a wrap on Super Brawl 1999. I don't know. Thumbs in the middle for me. I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. I'll say this. I have been enjoying this run of TV so fucking much. And the only thing that bothered me here is that, like, Coming out of this, is there a babyface on this roster who doesn't look like a piece of shit? I'm not sure no, there they is. Are, they are all geeks and losers. Like it, 
Conan and Ray were really coming along. They buried at the end of this. DDP buried at the end of this. Piper in the garbage. Goldberg is kind of irrelevant. Benoit and Malenko have been put in the ground. I don't really know where you go from this. And as it turns out, neither do they. Straight to hell. Yep. All right. Next time, we'll continue with the next chapter of this tragedy as we'll get uncensored 1999. Flair versus Hogan in a barbed wire steel cage. First blood retirement. Flair loses control of... If Flair wins, he gets full control of WCW. If he loses, he has to retire and... I don't know, get kicked in the balls or something, too, because it didn't have enough gimmicks. This may be the most gimmick-filled match ever in the history of wrestling. It's up there. It's uncensored! Yeah, we've never covered an uncensored before, which I didn't really realize until Steve pointed it out. And real boy, tragedy. we've missed out on some bangers, y'all. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what else is on the show. Lots of other dumb shit. There's definitely some kind of martial arts match involving Ernest Miller. Of course there is. Why wouldn't there be? <sighs> so, yeah. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.